Over the last few moments, we have sung together some songs, very moving and meaningful. Songs like Love Lifted Me. Songs like We Shall See the King Someday. No, those two songs alone are fantastic. Thank you for leading us in them, Larry. And so it is, as we come to this portion of our service tonight, we, as I've indicated in the bulletin, will give some thought to another installment of our questions and answers. Some have commented that they enjoy, in particular, the questions and answer sessions, and I hope that they prompt each of us in terms of some thinking, in terms of some consideration. Tonight will be somewhat unusual in the vein of most of these sessions, at least. We have but one question. So at this point, I would say to you, if you do have additional questions or thoughts, feel free to use that box of the foyer. We have, though, a question that will consume the, the time tonight because there are many factors that will go into it. And as we turn our attention to that in a moment, the at least opening slide will just be a motivation for each of us to reflect on the whole purpose of these is to rightly divide the word of truth, to give our attention to sometimes a particular question or a matter of interest that maybe you or I could have, and in so doing we could be a blessing or benefit to others who might have thought about these things or who might be prompted along that same way as well. The question tonight has a couple of parts to it, but this is the way it was worded. When did people first inhabit Europe? Could these people be saved before they heard and obeyed the gospel of Christ? If so, how? Now, at first sight, at least at first thought, there are a few aspects of that that will lead us on an interesting journey through the Word of God. And so let's develop it a bit slowly and systematically and put in places the things that will make for a rather direct answer when we come to the end. First of all, this ball, this globe on which you and I live... This particular question has pointed us to the ancient character. When did people first come to the land mass we would call Europe? How long ago was that? Can anything be said about the nature of the circumstances of that time and the religious characteristics of them? The answer to that is going to be yes, but it should begin, it seems to me, with some of the information before you on that slide. Earth, of course, was one of God's first creative matters. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You'll notice earth was mentioned in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1. And at that time, we notice that God's creation, if you please, of earth, earth didn't have immediately the characteristics that it, of course, has today. Because at that time, it was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. But it quickly points out to us on that slide <clears throat> that this globe, this ball that we call earth, has a size that would be beneficial for you and me <clears throat> to keep in mind. If you look at the earth as a ball, it has a radius, a, a diameter I should say, of a bit less than 8,000 miles. So at this point, you and I should remember, every time our car accumulates about 25,000 miles, we could drive all the way around earth ending back up where we started. But maybe in that light, or at least in that idea, it reminds us people don't live literally at every place on earth because much of it is, of course, water, and other parts of it are, shall we say, notable desert. They're uninhabitable at least for long periods of time. About one-eighth of the earth's surface is what you and I would recognize as habitable. One-eighth. 
And yet, in light of current Earth's current population, everybody's living in, a, in, in territory that would cover about an eighth of Earth's surface. But might we never forget, Earth is habitable. May we not bypass that thought too quickly. The other places you and I observe in the places in this universe, nothing is habitable like Earth. Nothing in long scale and long term consideration has all the features and the watermarks that make it habitable. Isn't that what God said in Isaiah 45 18? In speaking, God said, I have formed the earth, I made it to be inhabited. Now that alone is fantastic and compelling matters as you and I think about the uniqueness of earth. But maybe that uniqueness allows us to close that slide with this. To say earth is habitable, God created life upon this planet. Aren't you still fascinated that our government has funded a program now for almost 50 years, in fact, a little over 50 years, called SETI, where you're we're looking, our tax dollars in part are paying for the search for extraterrestrial life. Isn't that interesting? Now, you and I realize God made earth to be habitable. He made earth to be inhabited. And yet, in that connection, as you and I read the opening two chapters of Genesis, He formed man, Adam. And soon thereafter, He formed a woman, Eve. And you and I recall the life, of course, on the various days that had preceded it. Day three, day five, and also earlier on day six. Maybe it is in that light, in that connection. You and I can then notice in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, it specifically says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so it was that this fantastic element of God's creation, a being, again, not an animal, a human being. So that opening slide, humans and earth, but of course that immediately points us to this observation on the second slide, which will take us to man's first home. As you and I turn the page into what we would call Genesis chapter 2, we observe there that this man that God had formed, this woman, God had placed them in this place called Eden, E-D-E-N. Some information in Genesis chapter 2 is given about Eden, I wonder if we could ask, so where was it? Do we know where on the planet that Eden was? Where did the human family, in essence, originate from, at least in that regard? Thankfully, we do have some clues in that chapter that do allow us to at least make some interesting statements or conclusions. So you'll notice on that slide in Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 to 14, there is some information given about this Eden. Now remember, the place where Adam and Eve lived was eastward in Eden. There was a garden in Eden. So Eden was a much larger place than merely the garden where Adam and Eve lived. And so it was that we learned there are four rivers, you see, that were listed in connection to that garden, in connection to the place where Adam and Eve lived. I wonder if we could identify the rivers. Probably two of them are very unfamiliar to us, the Pison and Gihon rivers. To this day, we're not exactly sure where those two rivers were, but the other two rivers, the Euphrates and the Hittikel River, or rather the Tigris River, we do know where they are. 
In fact, to this day, we appreciate, you see, the existence, and quite often, in particular, the Euphrates rivers mentioned in Scripture many, many times after this. Its identification is clear. Let's, in fact, look at not one map, but two, in which, let me just point out, that would then suggest if we could locate this Euphrates and Tigris rivers, we shall then have a fairly good idea, at least, of where this Garden of Eden was located. Now, this is a map, really, of the modern-day portion of the Middle East. You'll notice nations like Turkey, Iraq, Iran. You'll notice even here's Pakistan, Afghanistan, and even India is over here to the far right. So, when our brethren from Willet come and talk to us, saying they have been to India, this is just a part of India right there. But, you'll notice that just to the east of Saudi Arabia is a body of water known as the Persian Gulf. Now, those of us that have a little bit of age on us, we will remember the Persian Gulf War of the early 1990s. point is, the nation of Kuwait is right here, and our country went to war back when Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait. You and I remember how that turned out, but what instigated that war was, of course, the oil supply that in fact flowed from Kuwait to our country. But my, perhaps beside that point is this. The country of Iraq and the country of Iran, notice both are such that right here are two rivers. One is the Euphrates and one is the Tigris, and those rivers empty into, you see, the Persian Gulf. It would thus be suggestive of the fact that here is the place where we have an image of the original Garden of Eden. It was somewhere located in that part of the world. Now, let's go to that next map that I had hinted at earlier because I wanted you to appreciate this is a bit blown up and not colored the same way that other one was. But you'll notice names that we will recognize. The Akkadians, the Sumerians, at least in history classes, much is said about the ancient Sumerian people, the language that they develop, very much akin to the ancient Hebrew. Other than that, here are the two rivers to which I've referred, and you'll notice in color is this word Garden of Eden. And again, the Persian Gulf is that body of water there at the bottom right. That's the part of the world where Adam and Eve were first placed. Now, I would be quick to say this. Aren't you impressed? As you and I look at news stories and we see images of what that part of the world looks like today, does it look like a garden? Does it look lush and green? You and I remember the Garden of Eden as God described it. Everything needful for Adam and Eve's sustenance was there. The images of the Bible, lush and provisional and green, and yet it surely does not look like that today. It looks arid. It looks dry. It looks parched. It looks so dusty. May I remind each of us that after Adam and Eve sinned, they were in fact removed or, or thrown out of the garden, and they were not allowed re-entrance into it. There was a curse placed upon that. You and I well remember it in Genesis 3, how strongly it's identified. The curse that God reigned upon that place is evident in light of what it looks like today. Now, be advised, that curse, of course, was larger in extent than merely the Garden of Eden. Remember, wherever man went, he was going to have to work by the toil of his face. 
by the character of his efforts in order to eat bread. But nonetheless, the curse is very evident when you and I reflect upon what that place looks like today. Later on, even Ezekiel pointed out how strongly different that place was in comparison to what it looked like originally. Let's go back to the previous slide. Because after all, with the human population beginning at that place, we would now anticipate that that was the cradle of civilization. Peoples would migrate from there and populate the planet, as of course would be seen in years that were to follow. You and I know, though, that something else intervened that caused a tremendous impact upon this, and it was the flood of Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Every person on earth except eight was killed as a result of that flood. That means wherever people had migrated to, wherever they had come to settle, those particular peoples died. In chapter number 9, it all restarted. The only eight souls aboard that ark were Noah and his wife, their three sons, and their, and their three wives. It is in that light, then, that we appreciate the entirety of earth's population then flowed through Noah's three sons. The Bible will inform us in Genesis chapter 11 that he only had those three sons. Now, in that connection, in that light, could I call to your attention then this. After the flood waters ended, you and I recall that the ark upon which they had been saved came to rest upon a mountain. Ararat, Mount Ararat. Now, if you and I can thus identify where basically Ararat is, we would then know it's from that location that the peoples of the planet were such that they began to migrate from there, and they began, of course, to populate. And so let's go to the map again. I point out that Ararat is a mount located just west of the Caspian Sea. So on that map... Look, if you would, at the top. The nation of Turkey is here. Now, the Caspian Sea is this very large body of water. Mount Ararat is right there. So it's from that location the ark came to rest. It's from that location that those three sons of Noah thus began their migration to populate the entirety of the planet. One last thing, though, would be this. On that previous slide, using the Bible's testimony of Genesis 10, we do know somewhat about where the various descendants of the sons travel to. Where did the descendants of Japheth populate? What about the descendants of Ham? And what about the descendants of Shem? Well, you'll notice on the bottom, Genesis chapter 10 gives us some information. The descendants of Japheth... It's expressly said in verse 5 of that chapter that they are the peoples that populated the isles of the Gentiles. So Gentile people, by and large, flowed through the lineage of Japheth. On the other hand, the descendants of Ham, those were the Canaanite peoples. You recall the people that the Israelites ultimately overcame as they came to the land of Canaan after the years of wilderness wandering. It was the descendants of Ham that had to be overcome. They were the Gergeshites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Hittites and all those peoples. They flowed through Ham. Finally, the descendants of Shem. 
The text says in verse 21, these are the people of the east, folks of China, folks of Pakistan, and folks of Malaysia and that part of the world. They, all you see, were the descendants of Shem. By this point, we have inched closer and closer. The question had asked us about European peoples, the people of the countries of Europe. By this, you and I can now appreciate they would have been the descendants. They were people who came through Japheth. One side note I might list for you. I did not list the descendants of Noah in order. Japheth was the oldest boy, Shem was the second oldest, and Ham was the youngest. We know that from the book of Genesis, but I listed them in the same order that Genesis chapter 10 lists them. As we turn into the next slide, why don't we then give thought to, specifically, the continent of Europe. So far, the biblical history has been relatively clear. But could I be quick to say that the ideas of man are now quite often referenced and we must be cautious about this. It begins with those observations at the top. Can I point out to you that the claims of evolution, general evolution, tend to have a large sway in relation to the question that's been asked. Again, the question was, when did people first come to Europe? Well, what kind of people were they? The typical scientific answer goes something like this. Approximately 40,000 years ago, migrants traveling in the direction from what we would recognize as the east came to the European continent. They did so, quite frankly, in a very different kind of fashion than you and I would recognize human beings today. Now let's add to that very quickly this. This is a merely human scientific assertion. Earth is not 40,000 years old. People didn't come to Europe that long ago. Based on the book of Genesis, the entire planet is only a little less than 7,000 years old. It couldn't have been 40,000 years ago that people first came to Europe. Rather, you and I have already noted in Genesis 10, God has indicated about the nature of the population. It was the descendants of Japheth who migrated in the direction we would now recognize as Europe. And it came to be. In fact, I would point out rather quickly that the flood had a large part to play in this. We've already talked about the flood. Let's note something about the timing of it. I've listed on the slide about when the flood took place. We know easily from the Bible record when the flood occurred. It was in the 1,656th year of the planet. In other words, after God's creation allows 1,656 years to pass, that's when the flood happened. We know that was the nature of that now. Let's try to work from our perspective backward. That would have been roughly about 2344 B.C., so around 2350 B.C. or so, that's when this planet was covered with water, when the Noahic flood of Genesis 6, 7, and 8 took place. I would be quick to point out, it's rather fascinating, it seems to me, that the various considerations of ancient civilizations all point us to a time frame not too distant from that date. Isn't it interesting? You would expect, if the Bible is right, that all the records prior to the flood would have been destroyed, at least all the records written in any way that was damageable. 
And so one would have much less history to be appreciated about the things that took place before that flood. You'll notice in particular the ancient Egyptian society typically dated somewhat about the time that would have placed it right before that flood. No wonder in that connection. Let's revisit then those descendants of Japheth. It's quite likely under the order that God gave, He told Noah's sons, you repopulate the earth in Genesis chapter 9. As in fact that took place, likely the first people that would have then come again to the European continent would have been not long after that time. They arrived there, and so we've answered the first part of our question. That question was, when did people first inhabit Europe? Approximately 2340 B.C. or something like that. As they migrated to that given place, it brings us to the next question. That question is this, could they be saved before they heard and obeyed the gospel? Well, notice we, at least in time, should now appreciate that answer in connection to the other testimonies of the Bible. In fact, under what age did these people live? Well, we've already learned about the, the time, about 2340 B.C. So that was over 2,300 years before Jesus came to the earth. So it wasn't expected that they'd be Christians. Nobody living at that time was a Christian. There weren't Christians until, of course, after Jesus came and after the church was established. And that was going to be well over 2,000 years after this. Who are some of the people living in that age of time? We've talked about Adam. Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. So Abraham would have lived roughly oh, two or three hundred years after this time. So we're roughly the time of Abraham. Job would have lived about this time. The book of Job details the man that we recognize as the greatest man in the East, that patriarch of us. So, Abraham and Job, and so the descendants of Abraham, you and I remember, so Ishmael and Isaac, they would have lived at least not too far in time different than this particular placement. It is with that said then, the question was, how could they be saved? They lived under the patriarchal dispensation. Remember, there weren't Jews by this time either. Jews were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, so... We're a couple of generations even after Abraham before there could be any Jews, any Hebrews. This was the patriarchal era in time. That is to say, God shared with these peoples through the heads of the families what it was He wanted them to know and what it was that His will was to be. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, and let's in fact read perhaps the clearest verse indicative of the way in which God dealt with the peoples who lived back at that time. Genesis 18, verse number 19. In this passage, we have a description of Abraham, and it reads like this. God, in speaking of him, said, For I know him, that him is Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So again, this was long before the law of Moses was given at Mount Sinai. 
It was long before the features of the church and the capability of being a Christian. These people lived in a time of the patriarchal era. God dealt, He shared His will with them as He communicated to the heads of the families, the heads of those particular peoples, and their responsibility was then to share with the members of their family what it was that was the will of God. That's what God said Abraham had done. That's what He was convinced Abraham would do. And that, of course, is what happened in regard to Adam and Job and, yea, so many additional Old Testament Bible characters as well. You may notice near the bottom of that slide that as these people were living beneath that patriarchal era, you and I remember, of course, that the latter part of the question was, could these people be saved? Sure they could. And that is, of course, an additional element that you and I should keep in mind. There has never been a time when any human being on earth was not without proper direction and instruction from God as to what was required to be saved. Nobody can legitimately claim on the day of judgment, but God, I didn't know. I had no access to what was the truth. That cannot be said truthfully. Everyone under any particular era has always had access to what was required in order to please the God of heaven. That was true of these people as well. Now that's not to say that sometimes the choices those people make are very different than what God would have them make. Think about the lineage of Adam. You and I recall that Cain, of course, chose very poorly and foolishly. We remember that his choices were such that his descendants chose to be disobedient to God. Of course, the line through Seth chose to be obedient. People have their own choices. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we read even in the heart of the New Testament the beautiful truth that Jesus came and died to, of course, forgive sins of one and all. And the blood of our Savior flowed not only forward to allow you and I to be saved, but also the New Testament teaches us that it in fact covered ultimately the sins of the peoples, even of that era as well. But they were required to be faithful and to live under their current era as God had commanded. In the closing of that slide, then it brings us to maybe one final set of observations connected to the continent of Europe. The question, in fact, pointed our attention to that. But these additional thoughts might well be in order. At the time that our Savior, Jesus, walked the planet, the Roman Empire was in full sway. And their power, of course, was great and mighty. In fact, you and I noticed that the Roman Empire came to occupy much of what we would today recognize as Europe. Interestingly enough, here's a map that shows the greatest extent of the Roman Empire. At the height of its ascendancy, you'll notice the empire. Here is the nation of Italy. Here's the city of Rome. So that was the imperial city. And you'll notice that the Roman Empire stretched all the way to Spain in the east, or rather in the west. You'll notice the northern part of Africa was also conquered by them. And eastward we go basically almost as far as India. That was a large continent, or at least a large area to oversee back at a time when there was no modern way of transportation like we have today, and yet they oversaw all of it.
you and I probably remember from our history studies, however, that ultimately that's what led in part to the fall of the Roman Empire. The empire was so large that Rome just wasn't able to oversee all of it. And so enemies to Rome ultimately began to arrive in these areas, and ultimately they would conquer it in about 476 A.D. But back to our previous slide where we'll make a couple of final comments. We've learned that the peoples who first came to Europe were not Christians. They lived long before Jesus ever came to the planet. But the question might be asked, when did the gospel first come to Europe? Brother Dennis read earlier in our hearing tonight from the 16th chapter of Acts. There we have the inspired biblical record of when the gospel first came to Europe. May I point it out to you again? In Acts chapter 16, on the second missionary journey, you and I appreciate, and all sisters return to that map as you and I then look at it. You notice that description was made that there was a Macedonian call in which Paul and had received this statement, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, when that particular message was received, Paul interpreted that as being God calling him to preach the gospel to Macedonia. Now, you and I appreciate that Philippi is located roughly in this area right here. Now, this is the nation of Greece. Here's Italy. Philippi is about right there. And so, when Paul crossed the sea and came to Philippi, he had left in Asia. This is The boundary between Europe and Asia runs right through here. He had left Asia. When he came to Philippi, the seaport town there of Samothrace, he was now in Europe. And for the first time, the gospel had come to Europe. And you and I remember the success that it had and the wonderful nucleus of a small congregation there that was formed from a jailer in Philippi, a damsel woman out of whom had been cast a spear of, div of, of uh, divination. And not only that, Lydia was there. And from that little nucleus of a congregation came to exist a blessed congregation and a whole New Testament letter was written to the church at Philippi. Our study tonight has been one that developed several ideas about this question. I hope then that as we conclude the lesson, we're in a position to better appreciate the movement through time and the characteristic connected to the gospel and the various dispensations under which the human family has lived. May I say tonight, of course, how sweetly blessed we are to have such ready access to the gospel. This very night, it could be someone in this assembly might wish to make a public response to the gospel invitation to become a member of a faithful member of the body of Christ. If you are a person out of duty with the Lord, maybe once have been faithful, but as of tonight, you know the direction of your life is not as it ought to be. You know the Lord loves you and Jesus' blood is still there for you. Won't you make a decision tonight to come before this grouping and make acknowledgement of sins known publicly? We'll be delighted to pray for you, to pray with you. I might say as well that if you would wish to become a Christian, oh, how sweet it is to reflect upon that text in Acts 16. If we do today what Lydia did then, we'll become today what she became, a simple New Testament Christian. And that's tonight what God asks of each of us. 
if you then would express your belief in the Lord through your confession. And as you do that, make acknowledgement of sins in terms of repentance. We would be honored to baptize you into Christ tonight. And in so doing, you could leave this building a faithful and saved person. If we could help you that way tonight, this song of encouragement has been named and listed. And we'd like to issue that sweet invitation and invite you to come if you'd wish to do so while we stand and while we sing.